0: Alright, we're doing the Elements of Worship, and this is the Elements of Worship Part 2. It's part of a series on what is worship, and we discussed uh, the reading of the Scriptures, and uh, we finished up prayer. Uh, I'm going to finish up the reading of the Scriptures, and then we're going to spend the rest of the day talking about the preaching of the Word, and um, I'm going to read from Psalm 33 as our text. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful, Praise the Lord with a heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Pray skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. And we'll stop there. We're discussing the reading of the scriptures as a separate element of public worship. And we've come to our third point, which is a little bit esoteric. I think Quaid will appreciate this we're going to talk about the use of a faithful translation and, of course, the proper text to use. Third, and I'm following the, the Directory for Public Worship here from Westminster Standards. Third, it is very important that we use a faithful translation that seeks to be as literal to the original as possible. I know it can't be perfectly literal, for the word order would be strange, but as literal as possible. As Bible-believing Protestants, we believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. That is, not simply the thoughts, but the very words are inspired. Every jot and tittle is inspired. The words are inspired. Inspiration extends not simply to thoughts, but the very words of Scripture. Therefore, to show respect to God's Word and learn exactly what God is telling us, we should not use paraphrases. For example, the Living Bible, or the New Living Bible, which is probably even worse, or dynamic equivalence translations in public worship. And an example of that is the NIV, the New International Version, which was all the rage in the 80s and 90s, and it has fallen out of favor. What's the one they're using now? ESV. ESV, yeah. which is a corrupt text, but it's a more literal translation. although which Greek text should be used by Christians in general, and in public worship services in particular, was not an issue in the 17th century. Every English-speaking church used the Textus Receptus or the Received Text, and that would be the Geneva Bible and that would be the King James Version. They all use the Received Text, which is a family of the majority text. It's in that family, although the book of Revelation certainly has its problems. uh, Erasmus not having a Complete copy of Revelation in Greek. The original Greek speaking churches use the majority text or the Byzantine traditional text. The Texas Receptus is largely based on the majority text. Like I said, there's problems in the book of Revelation. The King James Version, the New King James Version, and uh, the King James 2, which is, uh, if you're older, you're familiar with that. It's a very good translation. Uh, It might even be better than the New King James are all based on the received text the textus receptus virtually all modern translations the ASV the ESV the RSV the e, the new RSV the new ASB the NEB the Jerusalem Bible the NIV are none of them are based on the majority text or the received text but are all based on modern critical editions of the New Testament the Greek New Testament for example the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament third edition the Nestle Arnold Greek New Testament, 26th edition. These Greek texts reflect modern, critical, textual criticism. The critical editions of the Greek New Testament are chiefly the work of modernists, that is, Christian liberals, they're not real Christians, who, cert- who follow certain assumptions depend, uh, which depend primarily on a few older manuscripts. That were mostly discovered in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The Codus Vadiaticus and the Codus Sinaiticus. The Codus Sinaiticus was found in a garbage can in a monastery. Okay. The majority texts are not as nearly as old as the small number used for the critical editions. However, they are vastly greater in number, way, way more and were universally accepted and used by Christ's church since at least the 5th century. There are two reasons why churches should reject the modern critical edition of the Greek New Testament. Number one, there were serious problems with the presuppositions of the early critical scholars, such as Westcott and Hort, both liberals. Modernists who are unbelievers should not be treated should not be trusted with choosing the Greek text for Bible-believing confessional churches. And sad to say, all modern seminaries, virtually all modern seminaries, I don't the, the Greek, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and I think the Free Church continuing, still follow the Texas Receptus or the King James. And I know the very conservative Dutch groups do, the super conservative ones, like Joel Beeke, the Netherlands Reformed. None of the other seminaries advocate the majority text. They're all following critical texts. They've all bought into the presuppositions of Westcott and Hort, probably because the great scholars, such as B.B. Warfield, followed the critical text. <clears throat> Moreover, there are great variations between the Vadianicus and the Saniaticus manuscripts. These variations were downplayed and largely ignored. In addition, the fact that the Greek-speaking churches favor the majority text and use it for several centuries is not given any weight at all. Now you say, well, why don't we have a bunch of uh, real early, early manuscripts of the majority text, which the Greek churches used? We know they used them. They wore them out and had to make new ones. That's why. They wore them out. Um, I have some Bibles on my desk, uh, which are in such bad shape, they're just simply falling apart. Because I've been using them for 20 years, and they're just falling apart. And they're good they're good quality Bibles, but they're falling apart. They get beat up. Well, manuscripts are scrolls on parchment. Unless they're written on lamb's skin, they're not going to last very long. So they wore out and they made new ones. That's why we don't have a bunch of manuscripts. But we have tons and tons of these majority text manuscripts. Further, advocates of the modern critical versions must ignore God's providential preservation of the majority text. I want you to think about this for a moment. I know this is an esoteric topic, but it's important. Did God in his providence give all the Christian churches corrupt texts until the late 19th century? Think about that. Does that make sense to you? Or did God providentially preserve good texts for the church, and these new texts that are fostered upon the church by liberals are corrupt? And by the way, if you compare the text, they downplay things like the divinity of Christ. Now, they still teach the divinity of Christ. There's no question, but they downplay certain things about it. Number two. Since the widespread acceptance of critical texts, even by conservative Presbyterian seminaries, since then, a lot of research has been conducted that proves the superiority of the majority text. (coughs) Archaeological research, primarily in places like Egypt, Alexandria, they've discovered very, very old papyri, and papyri is paper made out of reeds laid cross on each other and they're compressed into paper and it's super strong paper. That agree, uh, the old papyri, that agree with the majority text. Very old papyri. And it agrees with the majority text. Ancient translations also confirm majority text readings. And there are also many majority text readings found in the very, very Old Church Fathers. I think this is very, very important in <laughs> The Disputed ending of Mark, for example, which is emphatically rejected by all modern critical editions, was accepted as canonical by the 2nd century A.D., by some of the Church Fathers. Now, if you look at the NIV, and if you look at the NASV, B, and you look at uh, the ESV and so forth, if they have the ending of Mark in it, they'll have a footnote saying that it's not in the good manuscripts. In some editions, some of the older editions, don't even have it at all. They just leave it out. But it was accepted by the early, early Church Fathers, second century Church Fathers, Given the overall evidence of God's providential preservation of the majority text, Presbyterian Reformed Communions should either produce a literal translation of the majority text (coughs) or simply stick to a faithful version of the King James Version of the Bible. And my view is that if if they want to produce a, a new translation, it should be done by a church, not by a committee, not by a publisher, but by a church. Ministers, scholars within the church which is what the King James, how the King James was done. The reading and preaching of God's word during public worship is crucial and reveals that public worship is, in a way, dialogical. Although in worship we focus on Yahweh and what he has done and we come to him with our prayers and praises, he also speaks to us and guides us by his infallible inspired word. And for this reason, we are to listen with godly fear. Pay attention. Have reverence. We covered all those things. Well, let's look at the next thing, and we'll spend the rest of today on this. (coughs) The sound preaching and consciensible hearing of God's word. And I won't quite finish this today, but I'll get through most of it. If one is to speak about what are the most crucial parts of public worship at least for sanctification. Well, for anything. would have to be the reading, preaching, and hearing the Word of God. The ministry of the Word takes precedence, the precedent place, for a number of reasons. Number one, the Word in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit produces saving faith. 1 Peter one twenty three, And this is talking about the new birth in the broader sense of the term having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear the word to be a Christian, to become a Christian. Number two, <clears throat> the word defines or gives meaning to all the other elements, How do we know what baptism is? The Lord's Supper. How do you know who God is? How do you know who Christ is? What Christ did? How do you know what salvation is? We learn everything from the word. Paul exalted preaching over the sacraments in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Word tells us everything we need to know to be saved and sanctified. It instructs us regarding the why and the how of worship. And, of course, the who of worship. True worship, like everything else in the Christian life, depends on the ministry of the Word above all. Number three. The preaching of the Word of God is the God-ordained means of building the kingdom of God on planet Earth. In one of our Lord's kingdom parables... Kingdom building is described as sowing the seed of the word, Matthew 13.3-8 and 18.33. The nations, we are told, Revelation 19.15, are conquered by the sharp sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ. That's not a literal sword. That's talking about the two-edged sword, the word of the living God. Titus 1, three. God has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then Matthew 24, 31, which uh, is mistakenly attributed to heavenly angels, but it's referring to preachers. And he, that is the Son of Man, will send his angels, literally messengers, With the great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together as elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And remember, Paul, he was going to go over here, but the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, No, go over here, for I have many of my people in this city. You're gathering in the elect through the preaching of the gospel. The Great Commission is based on an ordained preaching ministry discipling the nations by teaching the whole counsel of God <clears throat> with a focus on a comprehensive obedience to the whole Word of God. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20 The Great Commission teaches us that ministers are obligated to preach the whole Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And we know it's applied to ministers because it talks about the sacraments. Not anybody can administer the sacraments. Not everybody can preach the gospel in public worship. It has to be a minister. This accords with Paul, who assures us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. It is perfect and sufficient and thus fully able to sanctify believers and thoroughly equip them for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 and the apostle practiced what he preached, and thus declared to the churches, the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. I'm not guilty of anything he tells the Ephesian elders. If you get a problem, it's your fault, for I preached unto you the whole counsel of God. I didn't hold anything back. Due to the corrosive influence of the dispensational or Darbyite heresy, large sections of the Old Testament are ignored in many pulpits. The Old Testament law, we are told, is something bad. Consequently, even the obviously moral laws within it and their applications are ignored today. If the churches were doing their job, would you have homosexuality being legal today? Would you have sodomite marriage? And the answer is no. We're suffering due to the unfaithfulness of Christian churches and Christian preaching today. Such neglect has led to the rise of antinomianism in many evangelical churches and, of course, the carnal Christian heresy. The Great Commission also assumes sola scriptura and that we are not to preach from texts outside of divine revelation, such as the Apocrypha or the supposed Romanist unwritten revelations handed down through the church's traditions. The preacher is required to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. in divine and spiritual matters. He is to preach, rebuke, apply, and exhort with the full authority of God's word. And this task obviously limits preaching to an exposition and application of the word of God. You say, well, that's obvious. Well, you know, liberal churches don't limit themselves to the word of God. Liberal churches will quote Shakespeare. They'll quote all kinds of stuff. They'll talk about Mother Teresa This preaching mission is exemplified by the work of the Apostles in the book of Acts. The Gospel is preached to gather in the elect among the Jews and the Gentiles. And I'll just read this. I've got like... Acts 214 to 36, 3, 12 to 26, 4, 8 to 12, 5, 25, 28, 8, 5, 12, and 25, and 35, 9, 20, 10, 34 to 43, 13, 5, 16 to 49, 14, 1, 24 to 26, 15, 36, 16, 13 to 14, and 32, 17, 2 and 17, 22 to 31, 18, 4, 26, 19, 8, 10, and I stop there, etc. Throughout the book of Acts. Of course it's the book of Acts it's the planning of the churches the first churches in the Roman empire those saved and bap- are baptized and then systematically taught the scriptures to be faithful followers of Christ <clears throat> acts 2 44 to 47 1 john 219 pastor teachers in the grammar in ephesians it's not pastors comma teachers the gra- the grammatical way of doing it would be pastors slash teachers, are given to the church by God, Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. <clears throat> now, the Westminster Confession emphasizes that the preaching of the word must be sound, and that's the word it uses, sound. This word emphasizes that the preaching of the word must be Biblical. This means the content of sermons, whether based on a section of Scripture or on a topic that covers an important doctrine or practice found in the Bible, must first and foremost be exegetical. That's a historical grammatical method of interpreting the Greek or Hebrew text. Exegesis. It's not creative. You derive it directly from Scripture. All of teaching must be derived from the text of Scripture itself. There must also be no intrusion of human philosophy, speculation, entertainment, psychologizing, or invention whatsoever. We are to think God's thoughts after him and explain them in a manner that is easy to understand. Now, liberal churches violate this principle because they reject the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And, you know, I used to, when I lived in uh, Michigan... I would listen to, there was a liberal, a super liberal Presbyterian church, and they'd play the guy's sermons every morning. And I'd listen to those when I was shaving and so forth. And uh, they, you know, he'd quote Gandhi and Mother Teresa. he, it was, the Bible was obviously not his sole authority. In fact, he did a sermon on why we should reject inspiration and authority of scripture. He did a sermon on that, why we reject it. They're basically humanists. Their sermonizing is usually secular humanistic philosophy and ethics sprinkled with religious terminology. And I always wondered, if you're a liberal, why bother going to church? Why do you bother? Why do you pretend? You reject the Bible, you reject Christ, you reject the Atonement, you reject God, you reject the Re- Resurrection. What's the point? Now, evangelical preaching is often plagued with Arminian and Antinomian heresies coupled with pop psychology and a softer, more conservative version of humanism. Bible-believing Reformed churches have always been much better in this area than their evangelical counterparts because they emphasize Bible knowledge, theological training, some skill in the original languages, and conservative the, historical, <coughs> the conservative historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. Now, I know James Jordan and his followers have departed from that with his interpretive maximalism, which is a return to the ancient church's use of spiritualization. And they've done that to, because they follow certain heresies. Uh, but They're the exception, not the rule. The preaching of good, solid, sound sermons requires not only training and a call to the ministry of the word, but also dedicated preparation. Lazy preachers produce inferior sermons. And I, you know, I can go to a church and I can watch the preacher and I can tell Within 10 minutes, if he's really worked hard on the sermon or whether he's winging it, he got busy during the week and he threw it together on Saturday. You know, there's a lot of uh, dead dog stories and illustrations and very little exegesis. I can tell. You can usually tell. Now, there are people that are exceptions to that. People like Spurgeon and Calvin who were so brilliant and had photographic memories, basically, and they could get up there and they could wing it and sound great. But most people, you can tell right away, they didn't prepare properly. that the element of preaching involves teaching and explaining directly out of Scripture is easy to prove from Scripture. In the Old Testament, Moses preached inspired sermons from God directly to the people. All those early chapters of Deuteronomy, it's a series of sermons he did to the people before they went into the Promised Land. Now, they're inspired sermons. They come directly from God. They're inspired, but they're sermons. One of the chief <clears throat> tasks of the priests, of course, was to explain and interpret the Torah. And then later they explain the historical books, wisdom, literature, psalms, and prophets to the people. For example, see Nehemiah 8, 7 to 8 Leviticus 10, 8-11, Deuteronomy 17, 8-13, 24-8, 31-9-13, 33-8, 2 Chronicles 15-3, 2 Chronicles 17, 7-9, 19-8-10, 30-22, 35-3, Ezra 7, 1-11, Ezekiel 44-15, Twenty-three to twenty-four, Hosea four six, Malachi two one and five to eight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's easy to prove the element of preaching from Scripture. It's very easy. I mean, clearly, besides being commanded to do so, uh, it's it's obvious from the uh, historical examples. Jesus himself read from the Book of Isaiah and then he explained it to the people at the local synagogue, Luke four sixteen to twenty-two. And we, the sermon this morning, he did that. It was his custom to do that, it says. So before he became the big enemy of the state, and they went after him, and the religious leadership went after him, he was teaching in the synagogues week after week. The apostles, as we noted earlier, followed Christ's instructions and example regarding this element. Now, there are two words, there are probably more than two, but these are the two main words, used in the Bible that explain what sound preaching involves. The first refers to preaching as reasoning from the scriptures. And here's a few examples, Acts seventeen two to 3 18, 4, and 19, 24-25. The word is dialegomai. In the context of preaching, it refers to a careful analyzation regarding Scripture, which is then logically argued or exhorted to the people. It assumes that Scripture is examined in context, and passages are compared to other passages, so sound conclusions and applications can be made. It assumes the, what we call the historical grammatical method. You're not putting your own thoughts into Scripture. You're deriving your teaching directly out of the Word of God. You're organizing it. You're comparing Scripture to Scripture to make sure it's understandable and you can, so you can emphasize it. And then, of course, you make applications. The other words used refer to explaining or expounding God's Word. Mark 4.34, Luke 24.27, Acts 2.14-40, 2, 17.3, 18.36, 28.23. One word is epeluo, which is used for solving problems, explaining things, and resolving controversies. The implication is that preaching must make what is found in the text easy to understand, and that which may be difficult or obscure is made comprehensible. You're drawing out. You're explaining. This is what this means. And the, the best example of that is when Christ is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples who are looking at the Old Testament and then he, he stops he did, they don't know it's him he explains to them throughout the whole Old Testament the law and the prophets how Jesus is the Christ how he's the Christ and how he had to die and all that and then they understand the other word is dia ermeneu'o Luke 24 which means to expound interpret or explain thoroughly it is where we get the English word hermeneutics which refers to the science of biblical interpretation after the resurrection, this is the passage, Luke 24, 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <clears throat> so sermons are to be expository or, uh, or explanatory. The goal or purpose of the preacher's message must come exclusively from the text. The main points of the sermon should be derived from the section of scripture under consideration. And I think one of the best little books on preaching is by J. Adams, where he, show, he shows you how you should derive everything out of the text. Even your points should come out of the text. Spurgeon was very good at that at, sometimes. A lot of times the text was a springboard, but at other times he followed the text. One must convey precisely and simply the purpose of the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. The text is not to be a springboard for one's own ideas or speculations. And we see that a lot, especially when people are too busy to study and do their homework. And the text is a springboard. They talk about, I've seen guys preach where I turned to the guy next to me and we looked at each other and we're all, we don't even know what the guy's preaching on. <laughs> we have no idea. The point of preaching is not to impress with fancy words or use clever rhetoric but to present God's truth in an organized, logical, practical manner that can be applied to life. That preaching must be applicatory or experimental is set forth by Paul in his second epistle to the uh, young preacher, Timothy. And this is 4, 2 to 4. Listen to this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. Why? Well, here he tells him why. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Some translations have myths. The minister is to take a stand on Scripture, and not compromise the truth in all sorts of season and occasions, whether easy or difficult. He has to be faithful in his preaching. He, he has to preach and when he doesn't want to preach, he has to preach when he wants to preach. All sorts of occasions. The word convince, New King James, or reprove, the old King James, is elekon, elekon, heiress imperative of I wrote that down wrong which means bring to proof bring to proof bring to proof the preacher is to bring the hearers to conviction for sin or error by proving the true ethical or doctrinal position from scripture here's what you're doing here's what the Bible has to say you need to repent and here's why the Bible says A, B, C, and D. Bring to conviction. Bring to proof. <clears throat> it is used elsewhere of reproving. Uh, excuse me. The preacher is to bring his hearers to conviction for sin or error by proving the true ethical or doctrinal position. It is used elsewhere of reproving one who continues in their sin. First Timothy 5.20 and see Matthew 18.15 and following. And correcting those who contradict scripture or who have unbiblical theology, Titus 1.9. So what is the antidote to false theology? False doctrine? Well, it's the presentation of sound doctrine with convincing arguments with it. Oh, you, you're an Arminian. You believe that this and that. Well, here's why you're wrong and then you show them from the scriptures all the many, many manifold arguments in scriptures that prove he's wrong. The way to deal with unrepentant sin is to present the divinely revealed ethical position with solid biblical exegesis. The truth is to be presented not only with multiple witnesses from scripture, but must be delivered with skill, logic, conviction, or convincing arguments. So it's not simply a matter of quoting different texts. That's important. you quote the text and then you make personal application and and logical deduction. This is why you can't be doing this behavior. And the scripture says this, 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 and this. The truth is presented not only with multiple witnesses from scripture, but with skill, logic, conviction, and convincing arguments. Before church discipline is to occur, the pastor and elders are first engaged in a rescue operation, a rescue mission with love and long suffering. And once again the, the passage is Matthew eighteen, fifteen to twenty, which Christians disobey all the time. What do Christians do when they see sin? In the church, do they follow Matthew eighteen? They go to that person and they make multiple good, solid arguments why they need to repent? and then take a secondary witness if they don't repent right away? No, they gossip. And then they shun the person and gossip, and they don't even help them. That's a very unloving, very anti-Christian position. It's a rescue operation. It's not punishment yet. Punishment comes if they don't repent and they're excommunicated. But in the meantime, it's rescue. Convincing or reproving must also be accompanied by rebukes and exhortations or admonitions. The word rebuke, epitimison, refers to a uh, sharp reprimand where the person or persons is commanded to cease or bring their sinner heirs to an end. In other words... The presentation of biblical truths is accompanied with sharp commands to obey those truths and immediately repent if necessary. You prove your case and then you tell them they have to stop what they're doing. And you warn them, of course, about church discipline. When you discipline your children, what's the best way to discipline your children? Tell them why what they're doing is wrong and tell them they need to repent. And obviously, if they've been warned before, they can be spanked or whatever, but you want people to understand why what they're doing is wrong, then you command them to repent. Sanctification or growth in grace cannot occur if professing Christians do not believe or obey the truth presented in the sermon. For example, a lot of evangelicals know nothing about God's law because they, they don't preach the law anymore. And they're out there fornicating. That's condemned several places in the New Testament as well. But they're out there fornicating, having premarital sex. And the job of the pastor and elders, or whoever witnesses that, is to tell them why it's wrong from Scripture and warn them that they have to repent. Today, many preachers bend over backwards not to offend anyone in the congregation. Consequently, many sins and serious errors are simply ignored. Such behavior not only explicitly contradicts Paul and, of course, Jesus Christ, Matthew 18, 15 and following, but also harms the flock where it leaves people in their sins and serious errors. So, in the name of peace and love, people are actually harmed spiritually. And we live in a, a, a time of terrible church discipline. First of all, it's not conducted. And it's generally not conducted. And generally, what people do today is they don't want to confront people about sin, so they gossip. Gossip doesn't help them. Gossip divides the church, it's terrible. What you should do is confront the person and give him an opportunity. He gets three distinct opportunities. You approach him privately, approach him with two people, and then you take him to the session. If they don't obey after the third opportunity, then they're disciplined. Unless, of course, it's something scandalous like murder or adultery or something, then that's a different issue. But the word rebuke is accompanied by admonish or exhort. Pericere son, imperative of pericoleo the word means to beseech and literally denotes to call to one side. One is to appeal or urge the brother or brethren to repent with true Christian love and concern for their welfare, their spiritual welfare, as a fellow brother in Christ. Once again, the goal is repentance and recovery for their sake, not revenge or even Punishment at this point. Preaching must be with rebukes and admonitions because of the remaining corruptions of the flesh. J. Adams least still like to say in his books, you need to know counseling because the church is full of sinners. There's going to be problems. There's going to be sin. I've been, I've been in, what, at least three churches where people have committed adultery and, and other problems. There is a corrupt tendency in the sheep to wander, to be complacent and sluggish. The flesh is attracted to the love and ease of this world. Consequently, faithful preaching must rebuke, but also admonish with love and encouragement. The truths of Scripture must not only be presented faithfully and logically, but also with spurs to continued covenant faithfulness and repentance when necessary. The stubborn will must be continually prodded with love into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And the church is very unfaithful in these issues. Sin is ignored, and when it's not ignored, a lot of times it just turns into a a bunch of gossip, and the person isn't helped at all. And of course people just leave and go to another church. We had people that Uh, The woman was disciplined for adultery, and her response was she just left and went to another church. I have two churches that happened where the woman committed adultery. The woman was confronted for her scandalous behavior, scandalous behavior, and her response was, I'll just go to another church. So they went to liberal churches that didn't care about the adultery, and there's plenty of churches that won't do anything. Without the applicatory, experimental aspect of preaching, one is left with his history lessons and theological lectures. Such things are certainly useful, but our sinful natures require more. The fact that historically both the Jews and the Christians have repeatedly fallen into errors, heresies, and immoral behaviors proves that Paul's teaching is necessary. And then we'll end with just a footnote here. <coughs> I, don't, I don't know if you noticed, but Paul's concern in the context here is chiefly on false doctrine. He's emphasizing sound doctrine to counter false doctrine. <coughs> Verse 3a, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Genuine doctrine, truly believe, promotes spiritual health and progressive sanctification. The apostle even refers to heresies, in Galatians 5.20, as a sin of the flesh, right next to things like fornication and adultery. When Paul gave his final farewell to the Ephesian elders, he warned them against false teachers, saying, and this is Acts 20.29, 20, after my departure, savage wolves will, comes in, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then Peter concurred in 2 Peter 2.1, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So, obviously, it is crucial that Christian sermons be full of sound doctrine. Sermons must be doctrinal. Doctrine must come with application. They are first to be doctrinal, as the meaning of the text is brought out. Then one's application is to be based on the solid doctrine presented. Now, today, there's a general anti-doctrinal attitude among many evangelical and even some Reformed churches. I heard a sermon by an RPCNA minister, this was at a presbytery meeting, back in the 90s in the RPCNA, where he said, doctrine is, this this is a direct quote from an RPCNA minister from Indiana, doctrine is not important, life or practice is important. That's an idiotic statement, and it's false. Their basic presupposition is that doctrine is not very important, therefore we must focus on practical matters. Such thinking is radically unbiblical and ignorant. You've read Paul's epistles. What is the pattern of Paul's epistles, generally speaking? Well, it's a first to focus on doctrinal matters, sometimes deep doctrine, and then on applicatory section, where the implications of doctrine are applied to daily life. Doctrine, then practice. Doctrine, then practice. Theology, then life. Now, doctrine, of course, must be orthodox and must be fully believed before it is applied, for true doctrine without faith accomplishes nothing. But application without true, a true doctrinal foundation is nothing more than human opinion. Pop psychology, self-esteem gimmicks, and harmful humanistic platitudes. Evangelicals play down learning doctrine with a focus on practical matters and what's the result? Of course, they don't teach the law of God either. The f- The fornication rates in evangelical, according to a Gallup poll, I know it's getting kind of old now, but according to a Gallup poll, the fornication rates, that's premarital sex, and adultery rates and divorce rates in evangelical churches is only slightly, just a teeny bit lower than our pagan society in general, which is shockingly high, by the way. Second Timothy 1.13, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Titus one nine, Holding fast the faithful word he has been taught that he may be able to by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And those are the two of the Greek words we discussed. So, and we're, I, we're about done with preaching. I haven't talked about conscientious hearing yet. Uh, but how... Look how important it is. Look how critical it is. And I was in the RPCNA for many, many, many years. And preaching, solid preaching is not emphasized. Reformed Baptists actually emphasize solid preaching, and the preaching is usually better in Reformed Baptist churches because they've been influenced by two really amazingly good preachers. On the East Coast, it's Albert Martin, who's retired. Uh, He's retired. He's an excellent preacher. And on the West Coast, it was um, Dowd, I forgot his first name, I think it's Bill Dowd, and I think he's still alive, he's in South San Jose, who is every bit, in my opinion, every bit as good or better than Al Martin. They emphasize really solid Puritan-style preaching, and a lot of Reformed churches do not. Uh, some Reform preachers are excellent. Uh, the OPC used to have one in New York who was excellent. Uh, but then I lost all respect for him when he supported the federal visionists and said they shouldn't be disciplined. So from my standpoint, he's not a, he should not qualified to be a minister at all, but he was a great preacher. But preaching is extremely important. And if you have solid preaching and the people pay close attention, people should grow. Now, obviously, they have to be attending to their personal means of grace. So let us keep this stuff in mind. I think it's very helpful to understand why we do what we do and to define what we do what we do. And then, Lord willing, we'll continue this next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for these parts of religious worship. They're for us, for our benefit. What a privilege it is to hear your infallible inspired word. What a privilege it is to hear your infallible inspired word exegeted and explained and made clear to us and then applied to us. For we are sinners. We need it. We need it over and over and over again because of the flesh. So we thank you for that, Lord. We ask you to keep these truths in our hearts and minds, to help us to be obedient, to be sanctified by your word. Your word is truth. We thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen.